Father, thank you that you are our anchor, that you are the one that keeps us steady in the storms of life. And we can be crazy for that. And now, Lord, just bless Stephen as he brings your word. Uh, may his words be your words this morning. In the name of Jesus. Amen. As always, it's an absolute pleasure to be here and, uh, and to be speaking. And we're back in Genesis uh, again this morning. And I want to talk about Joseph, um, an interesting story, an exciting story, I think. Um, and I'm going to paraphrase some of it. Um, otherwise, um, we'll be here uh, for far too long. So Joseph, son of Jacob, a special son, um, as Joseph thought, because Jacob had a wife, plus he had what they would call handmaidens in those days. But Joseph and one other son, Benjamin, were his two sons by his dearest uh, wife that he loved called Rachel. And so for him, Jacob was very, very special. And we know from such films as Joseph and the Multicolored um, and the amazing dream coat of this coat that his father bought for him uh, to show him something special. But if you actually look into the original meaning of the word, not only was it multicolored, but it would have been long sleeved. And the reason for that is because people that had um, a lazier time, shall we say, in life and didn't have to work could afford to have long sleeves. But those that had to work for a living, like the majority of his brothers, would have short sleeves because uh, they'd get rather messy. And if you've ever watched them, um, uh, Jane and I like all creatures, great and small. If you ever watch that, and you see people helping cars and things to get birds and not sleep, you want to quickly get quite messy. So. so Joseph was this special chap, but he was a little bit unwise in some ways, I would guess, because he had a dream. And if you don't mind putting up that first um, overhead, Pete. Thank you. He had a dream. And unwisely, he told his brothers this dream. And what he said is, I had this dream. And we were all out in the field and we all had sheaves of corn. And then all your sheaves of corn bowed down to my sheaf of corn. And they weren't very impressed by this. And then he told them another story about how he saw the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowing down to him. And of course, they were saying, what is this? Are we going to worship you? You know, he wasn't even that. The oldest son that would have had the most respect, he, he, he was at that particular time one of the youngest other than, than, than Benjamin. And so, interesting as we're talking about hatred this morning, his brothers hated him and they despised him. And one day his uh, brothers, they were out in the field because in those days you had to travel quite a bit to, to feed um, the sheep, you couldn't leave them in one place. Uh, they were quite some way away and his father sent him off to check on them and make sure they were okay. And they saw him coming, uh, and originally they were going to kill him. Um, but then they decided that perhaps they, they didn't want his blood on their hands. So what they did is they um, threw him into um, a cistern, a pit, a dry pit. Um, and they left him there while they were debating what to do with him. And at that time, a slave caravan came along. And so they actually sold him uh, as a slave. And was taken off to Egypt where he was in servitude. Um, 
But even in that desperate time, God blessed Joseph. Um, and he was a hardworking man. And what scripture constantly says is that God was with him. There was something about him that people knew that God was with him. And I do wonder sometimes whether people realize that God is with us or are we just like an amorphous mound of people that just blend in with everyone else and there's nothing different about us um, in the world. There's nothing different about us as individuals um, and also as Christian churches throughout the world. At that time, Jacob would have only been 17. And then, just as he started to rise to prominence because he worked so well, he was put in charge of a chap called Potiphar, who was like um, the captain of the guard in Pharaoh's household, that would have been a highly exalted chap. Because he was young and he was a handsome, good-looking chap, Potiphar's wife decided that she was going to make a play for him. And he resisted. Uh, and this went on on several occasions. And at one time, she grabbed hold of him and he just fled. And scripture says to flee from sin. And that's a good thing to do. He ran out of the house, but she was left holding uh, his robe. And so she accused him of trying to, uh, to rape her, indeed. Uh, and this poor, innocent man was put in prison. And he says prison, but it was more of a dungeon. And in those days, Dungeons were pretty horrible places. I mean, they're not too special today. If you've ever seen a police cell where you've had some um, drunken chap in there for several hours and you smell it in the morning, it is absolutely disgusting. So I can't even begin to think what a dungeon would have been like with these people that would have been there for years, no washing, filthy. It would have been, you know, there were no flushing latrines in those days either. So it would have been an absolute awful experience. And something that struck me when I was reading this was that we all have these dungeon experiences um, in our life, you know, where everything seems hopeless, where everything seems to be against us and we don't know which way to turn and we can seem to be trapped. And I thought, those of you that might remember going back some years, Terry Waite, he was all on the news, wasn't he? He was the special envoy of the Archbishop of Canterbury and he was kidnapped by Hezbollah um, and for what, four years he was imprisoned. And somebody sent him a card to try just to remind him that he wasn't forgotten. And this was a card that showed um, John Bunyan's, uh, the, the, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress. And it was a colored stained window of a church in Bedford. And they just addressed it to Terry Wake, care of Hezbollah. And it got to him and they gave it to him. And he said that that was a lifesaver because he looked at this and he said it was like a window a window to a life outside of the prison, a window to what he had before, to his family and his friends. And I think sometimes in our lives when we have this dungeon experience, we do need this window. We need something to take us from there and to look outside and realize that this isn't forever, this is temporary, and there is a way out of this dungeon of our life. And so Joseph was blessed. And he was in the dungeon. And I guess he would have gone up one morning and it would have been like the last two years of his life in this dungeon. And I don't know what his routine would have been, but I don't suppose he would have been able to get up to much. But he had been put in charge of the prison because he was just an exceptionally gifted man. But the one thing different about that morning that he didn't know at the time was that the previous night, Pharaoh had had a dream. 
And then, of course, Pharaoh's cupbearer. And if you've ever read the story, you'll know these things I'm, I'm talking about. If you haven't, really would recommend that you read it because there is a very, very good account of how God was with Joseph. And I think it's an exciting account. Pharaoh's cupbearer, who was the chap who was sort of being like a food taster. So in those days, everyone was trying to kill the top man. And so they had a cupbearer who would taste his wine, who would taste his food. Um, and everyone would sit there and just look at him. And if he didn't collapse to the floor, they knew the food was okay. And then Pharaoh would eat. And um, so the cupbearer suddenly remembered that two years previously, Joseph had interpreted a dream that he had. And Joseph had said to the cupbearer, don't forget me, remind Pharaoh that I'm here. And he hadn't done anything about it. So he then remembered. And so he told uh, Pharaoh about this chap that was in prison and had this amazing ability via God to interpret dreams. And Joseph was brought out of the prison, washed, shaved, changed, and put in front of Pharaoh. So um, I'm in Genesis now, Genesis chapter 41, if you want to um, just follow it um, from there. And the scripture says here, when two full years had passed and Pharaoh had a dream, he was standing by the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the river bank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek fat cows. And then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven ears of corn, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other ears of corn sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin ears of corn swallowed up seven healthy, full ears. And then Pharaoh woke up, and it had been a dream. <laughs> and then I'm going to leap on to uh, verse 15 of that same chapter, when Joseph was brought before Pharaoh. And he said to Joseph, I had a dream. No one can interpret it, but I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph said, I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And then Pharaoh tells Joseph uh, what the dream is, and Joseph says to Pharaoh, going into uh, verse 25, uh, the dreams that Pharaoh had are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears of corn are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterwards are seven years. And so are the seven worthless ears of corn, scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. And so Joseph went on to tell Pharaoh that there was going to be a famine in the land. There would be seven good years, and after that, there would be no food throughout the whole land. Um, and people would starve and people would die. And so Pharaoh was looking for someone that he could put in charge. How are we going to solve this? What is it that we can do? And Joseph was the chaplain um, that was chosen and he was made prime minister and he built storehouses and a percentage of proportion of all the grain that was um, grown during those seven years were put in these storehouses. And interestingly, if you look uh, into history, and going back um, to those times, there is um, evidence there that the Nile was diverted during that particular period of time to irrigate crops and to irrigate um, the land. Um, and that would have been, I think, about 1887 BC um, was when all this was happening. It was about 437 years before the Exodus. And so God 
was planning already for what was going to happen in the future. God has long-term plans. God doesn't just do short-term plans. And so Joseph was made prime minister. He hadn't seen his brothers for 20 odd years. I mean, two decades had passed while Joseph had been in captivity. So he'd been languishing in the prison, then he'd been made prime minister, he built storehouses, and everything was going pretty well. And then came the famine. And that would have been everywhere. And Joseph would have known that the famine was going to be in Canaan as well as every other place in the vicinity of Egypt. And I guess he would have been looking to see if his family were coming because Joseph would not have forgotten his brothers. There were lots of caravans that would be coming into Egypt in that day. And I can just picture him standing there and looking and just hoping, are these my brothers? Could this be my father? What about my youngest brother, Benjamin, who has been a very, very young boy at the time? And then one day, the caravan arrives and there are his 10 brothers and they've brought money because they know that Egypt is the only place to go. Go to Egypt and buy grain and live, otherwise you will die. And they don't recognize Joseph because time had gone on. Joseph was clean shaven. If you put the one up about him, there we are. He'd have been clean shaven. He was much older than when his brothers had last thrown him into the pit and sold him to the slave traders. When they arrive, what do they do? They bow down before him. Joseph would have remembered his dream when they said, we will never bow down to you. And that's one of the reasons they hated him and threw him in the pit. So in Genesis 42, um, just in verse 1, it says that when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some. And then leaping on to verse 7. Um, when they arrived uh, in Egypt. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. And although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And he remembered his dream about them. And he said to them, you are spies. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lived in the land of Canaan. The youngest is with our father, and one is no more. <coughs> I wonder what Joseph would have felt when he heard that. One is no more. That was him. That they were referring to. He was the one that they thought were was no more. Why was Joseph in Egypt? How had it that God had allowed this to come to pass? The reason is that the brothers thought they could defeat God's plan. When Joseph told them the dream that Joseph was going to be exalted, he was going to be special, they tried to defeat God's plan. That's why they said, never bow down to you. Originally, they wanted to kill him. You can't defeat what God is going to do. If God has a plan, God will carry out his plan despite our best or our worst efforts. Scripture says that the brothers meant their actions for evil 
but God meant it for good. And through those actions that happened 20 years previously, God had put a plan in operation to save his people. So Joseph spoke, Egyptian, to his brothers through an interpreter. He acted as a stranger and he spoke roughly to them. Was he guided by the Spirit to do what he did, I wonder? Because scripture actually says that Joseph was the first person who was filled with the Spirit of God. So he accused him of being despised. When they said one is no more, in their hearts, they were trying to convince themselves that Joseph was dead because they had a guilty conscience. And if you have a guilty conscience, you will do everything you can to try to push it to the back of your mind. Don't want to confront that. They were trying to make themselves feel better. Sinful mankind today says that Jesus is not alive, that Jesus is dead because people have a guilty conscience, the things they do and the things they say and the way that they act. And by saying that he is no more, he is dead, didn't rise from the grave, they're trying to soothe their conscience. So Joseph was alive, despite the brothers saying, one is no more. And Jesus is alive, despite people who say he is no more. So in verse 18 of chapter 42, Joseph tells them, to return to Canaan and bring their youngest brother with them. And the brothers know that there is no way that Jacob, the father, is ever going to allow Benjamin to return or to come to Egypt. He'd already lost Joseph. He talked about his gray hairs and going down to the grave because he was distraught at losing Joseph. And yet then Joseph is actually saying to his brothers, you bring Benjamin to me. And to make sure that you do, we're going to keep one of the brothers here. And he kept Simeon, and uh, he was put in the prison, and he was kept to ensure that the brothers returned. It's interesting that sometimes our hearts need to be softened and need to be gentled before we can really enter into all that God for us. And there's a story of um, an opera singer who was a very, very good opera singer. And one day she was singing to a packed audience in an opera house. And the chap who had actually written the opera was in the audience and she didn't know. And someone said to him afterwards, um, what did you think of her singing? And he said, she will be really great when something happens to break her heart. Because there's something about people who have had a rough time, people whose hearts have been broken, brings out our softer nature. And Jane and I have said many times about people we know that never seem to have had any problems. They've sailed through life and everything seems to have been great. And yet there are other people where they have disasters in their lives so often. And I sometimes think it's like a, a piece of steak, if I can use a cooking analogy. Before you cook it, you give it a good whack with a rolling pin and tenderize it. And I think people are the same. When you've had a tough time in life, when things have been difficult, when you've had perhaps this dungeon experience, then I think we are tenderized. 
and we are much, much more able to actually be more compassionate to people, to understand the suffering that people um, are going through. And so the brothers, all, to, all uh, nine of them, um, return to Canaan and they persuade Jacob that Benjamin needs to come to Egypt. Otherwise, we're not going to have any more food. So what was God doing? Um, I've got a little reading here from Job. And Job suffered immensely. If ever someone was tenderized, um, it was Job. And this is from uh, Job chapter 23. Uh, from verse 3. And he says in this, if only I knew where to find him. <coughs> Talking about God, if only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say. What was God doing? I guess he was saying. What's he doing? I don't know. Where is he? I can't find him. What he sees, I can't see. And then from verse 10 of that same chapter 23, Job says, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. My feet have kept closely to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. So Job is saying, I know this. Even though part of me is saying, God, what is your plan? I can't see you. I can't find you. And yet in his heart, he was saying, I know this, and I know in another part um, of the book of Job, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And I guess Joseph was very much like that. Joseph knew that God was with him. Joseph, I guess, would have thought, I know this. I can get through this. And God sometimes hides people away. And God doesn't rush. God's plans are long-term. And they take time. Abraham waited so long for the birth of Isaac. Moses had to wait until he was 80 before the Exodus. And of course, the Exodus was what, 437 odd years after the incident that we're talking about now. Noah waited 120 years for rain. And we're talking about that when I was talking about um, the building of the ark. You can only imagine 120 years, no rain, and there's this huge boat being built. So that would have been a little bit of a panic. And Paul, in the New Testament, he was hidden for three years in Arabia before he then came out and started his ministry. Jesus didn't even start his ministry, public ministry, um, until he was 30. And so Joseph was hidden away in a dungeon as a slave in Egypt. And he was tried in the fire of affliction. And it was that that made him the character and the person that he was. His heart was broken, like that opera singer. When her heart is broken, she will be really great. Joseph's heart must have been broken and he faced these unbearable circumstances. But Joseph had a vertical perspective, and I've often thought about this. We have this horizontal perspective when we look at what's happening in the world, we look at what's happening in our lives. But the vertical perspective is when we look at God and what is God doing in our lives? And that can just change the way we look at things. 
John Bunyan's picture, the Terry Wayne, a window to look outside of what we are and where we are, and I suggest to look at God. And so the brothers go back to Canaan and they persuade Jacob that it's the only thing they can do. They don't have food, they're going to starve. So back they come. Now, what I didn't say is on the way back home, they stopped to feed the donkey. And when they opened it, guess what was in the sack of grain that they bought? Their money. It's a bit like winning the lottery. They had all this grain, they spent all this money, all of a sudden it was back. But instead of actually saying, We've got my money still. We've spent all that, got all that grain, very valuable stuff. We've still got our money. They were absolutely terrified. And again, I suggest this comes back to a guilty conscience because when people have a guilty conscience, even when good things happen unexpectedly, they're wary and sometimes they can be afraid of what is causing this and what the circumstances are. So, Off they go, and they um, persuade Jacob, as I said, that Benjamin needs to come with them. So they bring Benjamin with them. Uh, Jacob gives all kinds of dire warnings about what will happen if he doesn't come back. He must have been panicked that mad. Um, and then again, I guess that Joseph would have been waiting on the road, waiting for them to come along. He sees them, and his heart would have just been full of joy, even though he again spoke roughly to them, because this was part of God's plan. What God was doing was looking at the hearts of the brothers. And so he was using Joseph as his agent to see what was in their hearts. And of course, they were speaking in Hebrew and they were saying, all this has happened to us because of what we did to our brother. God is actually repaying us. They had no idea because he spoke Egyptian through an interpreter. They had no idea that he understood every word they were saying. And he actually says in the scripture there at one stage that he turned away and he wept. And his heart must have been broken to see these brothers. But what he was looking at as an agent through God, what was in their hearts now? Were they the same people that they were when they wanted to kill him, when they wanted to actually throw him in the pit and they ended up selling him to the slave traders? And the answer is no, they were different people because their hearts had been broken. The guilt that they carried for 20 years and Joseph then could see that they were different. They'd found money in their sacks and they brought it back and said, your servants, we paid our money and yet here it was in the sack. And he could see that they had started to change and become honest people. Then as we jump to Genesis chapter 45, Joseph could no longer control himself, it says. It, put up this charade, this pretense, spoken harshly, pretended he didn't know them. But then he says, Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, make everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he went so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. <laughs> Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified. I guess they must have thought again. You have 12 brothers. Benjamin was with them at that time, but one is no more. And all of a sudden, the one they thought was no more was standing before them, the one they had bowed before, and said, I am Joseph. And Joseph said, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, 
the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead. And into verse 8, it says, So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to your father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay and you shall live in the region of Goshen to be near me, you, your children, and your grandchildren, your flocks and herds, and all you have, and I will provide for you there. And so we can see there how God's plan had worked out. The brothers thought that it was their plan of what they were doing to Joseph, but it was God's plan to move Joseph in to Egypt because of his long-term plan to save his people. When Jacob moved with his family, as Jacob is instructed to actually live in Egypt, there were about 70 of them. The tribe had been decimated. So God's people, God's chosen people, were down to 70. But moving into Egypt, and they prospered, and they flourished. And of course, we know that further on um, in, 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 the, in, in the story there of, of the Exodus uh, and prior to that, 437 odd years later, they'd become slaves and they'd grown and there were millions of them. And that was God's way of moving them from this land into a land where they could be nurtured and they could grow and God could preserve um, his people. So what can the story of Joseph tell us for today? Because these accounts in scripture, in their own right, they're important. And in their own right, I believe we need to understand that we need to have an application of scripture to our lives today. And I think for me, it's about our hearts and about how God looks at our hearts and how he wants us to change. He doesn't want us to be deceptive. He doesn't want our hearts to be dark. God tested the hearts of the brothers and he tests our hearts today. He's concerned about our hearts. There's no fooling God. We can't pretend. And so when the brothers found the money in their sacks of grain, they couldn't pretend the money wasn't there. They knew that they actually had to confess and say that we still have the money. And it's the same with us. If we've got stuff that is hidden, there's no point in us pushing it down and trying to hide it. Metaphorically speaking, push it into the grain and tie the sacks up and go our way because God will know. God wants us to have open hearts, clean hearts, pure hearts because he tests us. What is the stuff in our life that is hidden? And we think that it's hidden from God. We need, I believe, to confess what is in our hearts, to confess the wrong that is in our lives. And confession doesn't just mean speaking the words. When I used to go to Church of England, there were some lovely words we used to speak these words about confession. But unless there is repentance, confession of itself means nothing. If we're just going through the actions, if we're just reading the words, and if we're just saying it, that means absolutely nothing. We need to do something, I believe, that is repentance. And my son told me an interesting um, one just the other day about, for him, because he's in the military, he said repentance is like the sergeant major saying, attention! And you stand up and you take notice. And he says, about turn, 
quick march. And that's what repentance is. It's paying attention, looking at what is wrong. You turn away and you flee from sin, you go in the other direction and you do it pretty quick and you don't go back to it. That is the repentance side. And then comes the confession. And so for me, the story of Jacob has so many things that we could pull out of it about sacrifice and nobility of character and courage and integrity and all of these things. But for me, I think it's about the heart. God looks at the heart. We might mean it for ill. God means it for good. And so if there are things hidden in the sacks of grain of our lives, let's do something about it. Let's get it out and get right with God. Make a question.